Chronicles chapter 29. First Chronicles 29. And we'll read verses 1 through 22. This is in connection with the Catechism, which gives us our topic for this afternoon, which is the closing of the Lord's Prayer, the, the doxology uh, that, by which we finish the Lord's Prayer. And we see a similar sort of uh, line, or uh, a similar uh, sort of ending to the prayer, an ending of praise and worship also in this chapter. So First Chronicles 29 We'll read verses 1 through 22. And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. And, his, and the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver, And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. Three thousand talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and seven thousand talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house, and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold, and silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of fathers' houses made their freewill offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God. And praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are strangers before you, and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. 
I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord, and on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, and a thousand lambs, with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together our songs of praise from Psalm 97, stanzas 4 and Faith. We find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 52 on page 563 of your books of praise. And we are in the second half of that Lord's Day, beginning in question and answer 128. So that's on the next page. There the question is, How do you conclude your prayer? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is, all this we ask of you, because as our King, having power over all things, you are both willing and able to give us all that is good. And because not we, but your holy name, should so receive all glory forever. What does the word Amen mean? Amen means, it is true and certain. For God has much more certainly heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire this of Him. So far from the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we've been studying the Lord's Prayer for the last many weeks, uh, we've been remembering every time at the beginning of the sermon that our goal for this entire series is to understand the meaning of every petition of the Lord's Prayer, uh, because we recognize that the Lord's Prayer is not given for us just to recite as if the words have power in themselves, but that the Lord gave it as a teaching model for all of our prayers. So that's why we study the Lord's Prayer. We want to know what does each petition mean that it can then shape and direct all of my prayers, whether I use these specific words or not. Uh, So that's why we've been studying the Lord's Prayer, so we would come to learn how to pray ourselves Uh, that our communication with God would also be deeper and more meaningful, and ultimately that our concerns, the things that we pray about, would reflect the will of God. And we saw this already in the very first sermon in in this series, that when we pray, uh, two things happen. Our concerns go up to God, as, as God calls us to do, to bring our concerns before Him, but then His concerns also, as we pray, become ours. Uh, The goals that He has in mind become the goals also on on our hearts. Well, having said that, we come now to the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. 
And the first thing that we want to just observe is that the conclusion to the Lord's Prayer is not actually a part of the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught us. Uh, Though I will argue in a moment it is very much in tune with that prayer. But the exact words do not come anywhere from the lips of the Lord Jesus. You don't find them in any of the four Gospels. In the original text of Scripture, the Lord's Prayer ends with the last petition. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then the Lord Jesus continues in, in, in His teaching. Uh, so when do they, where do these words come from, and how, do they, how did they end up in the official Lord's Prayer. That's the first question we want to deal with. Now, if you have a King James or a New King James Bible, these words, you'll see them written there in that text. Uh, the challenge is that we have many, many more, uh, many earlier manuscripts of, of the Bible that clearly show that these words were not there originally uh, in, in either Matthew or Luke's Gospel. And if that's not evidence in itself sufficient, uh, the, the early church fathers who, who wrote many commentaries on the Lord's Prayer never wrote anything about these last lines, which, which shows, again, very decisively, these were not part of the original Lord's Prayer. Uh, and, and you can see this also as you trace the, the manuscript evidence. What happened is the Christian churches wanted to use this prayer as part of their worship services, uh, using the words that Jesus himself used uh, to make it just part of the liturgy of the church. Uh, but they felt that it would be appropriate if they're going to do that, to recite the Lord's Prayer in church, that it would also be appropriate to finish that prayer with some form of doxology. Uh, a doxology, if you want a definition, is an expression of praise or honor that comes at the end of, of a letter or a prayer. You see it in almost every one of Paul's letters. He, he finishes the letter with something like, uh, all praise and glory and power, etc., belong to God. He finishes on a note of praise. And we want to do the same in our prayers. We want to finish on a note of praise. Uh, so, for example, 1 Timothy 1, verse 17, Paul writes, To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. That's a doxology, an expression of praise. Or Jude, uh, verse 25, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Another doxology. Uh, one more coming from uh, the, the elders in, in Revelation 7, verse 12. Uh, they were saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. There's another doxology. Uh, so Christians all around the world in the early centuries, they used different doxologies at the end of the Lord's Prayer whenever they used it in, in the worship service. And so if you uh, look at the different manuscripts of Scripture, as they come from different parts of the world, you see the prayer ending with, with different words. Uh, in, in Egypt, for example, it, it was simply written, Yours is the power and the glory, without even the word Amen. Uh, in another part of Egypt, it was simply, for yours is the glory, amen. Or uh, the Latin versions, so this is now coming more from the direction of Rome, uh, they say, yours is the power forever and ever. 
Uh, and, and some even make it uh, longer. They say, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit forever. Amen. So all these different uh, congregations in the ancient Christian world were using their own form of the doxology at the end of the prayer. Uh, the, the early church then understood what we, we also do well to understand, that the Lord Jesus gave this as a teaching model. It's, there's no rule that we must use every word uh, exactly as the Lord Jesus used them. It's meant to teach us how to pray. So when the early church used it, they also uh, expressed some freedom in the choice of words. Uh, that being said, that does not mean that words like these, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, uh, are, are man-made and therefore do not belong in our prayers. In fact, they're taken almost verbatim from Scripture itself. First uh, Corinthians 29, verse 11, which we read together, there David said, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is Yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and You are exalted as head above all. So there all the elements that are in the doxology that we use are also there in, in David's prayer, which we recognize is also inspired by the Holy Spirit. These words then, uh, though they may not be original, they do teach us something about our prayer. They show us the biblical attitude in prayer. Uh, there are three things in, in this, this doxology that ought to be there in our prayers, whether they're there in those exact words or whether they're there in our attitude in prayer. And that's what we want to focus on then this afternoon. What can these words teach us about our attitude in prayer? We should recognize, first of all, they bring us right back to the first three petitions. In that way, they function as sort of bookends. I don't know if you noticed that, but the, the, the doxology goes right back to the first three petitions. Um, and that's important. The, the early church, as they, they put this together, uh, they recognized that the Lord Jesus did not by accident teach us to pray first for the name of God, the kingdom of God, and the will of God. That the Lord Jesus invites us, as we've seen, to, uh, to be called up into God's glorious purposes first before we get to our own individual needs. This is important for us. We so easily slip into a habit of, of praying only for the immediate needs in our own lives or in the immediate needs in the lives of our brothers and sisters. The Lord Jesus teaches us, do get there. Do bring those concerns to God in prayer. But don't begin there. Begin with the global purposes of God. Uh, even our sufferings, even the trials that we often pray to God to deliver us from, they are given to us by God for us to be useful in His service. When we begin with God's purposes in the first three petitions, then we are rightly able to pray the last three. And so what this doxology does is it, it brings us right back to those first three petitions, reminding us that at the end of the day, the kingdom is not mine, but God's. The power to accomplish all these things that I'm praying for lies with Him and not with me. And the glory that makes it all worth it, the glory that I want to live for and devote my life to, is not my glory, 
but his. Brings us right back to hallowed be your name. And knowing these things, not just in our head, but, but taking them into our hearts at the level of our instincts liberates our prayers, frees us from being preoccupied and consumed by the little things that tend to consume our lives and allow us to be freely called up into God's glorious purposes. So let's spend a few minutes thinking through each of these these three confessions. Uh, First, you can see there's an expression of submission, an expression of submission where we say, yours is the kingdom. Uh, we acknowledge at the close of our prayers that, uh, that this world belongs to Christ. After he arose, we've seen this, he declared to his disciples, all authority in, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The kingdom then, we recognize, is his and not ours. Uh, though, though we belong to it, we recognize it serves his purposes first. Uh, it, it is not there to serve Ours. And we want to remember this as we pray. We are not calling God to be on our side, but praying to God that He would make us on His side. Uh, we are remembering what we prayed for in the second petition, that Christ would reign. That this is our heart's desire. That Christ would reign on this earth over all people's nations, and languages, and and that all would submit to Him. That His justice would rule. That the works of Satan would be destroyed. Uh, and, and if you remember back that far in the catechism, when we pray this, we're praying especially that that purpose, that Christ's reign would begin right here at home in our own lives and in our own hearts. Uh, so we conclude our prayers by saying, yours is the kingdom, not mine. We are acknowledging His Lordship over our lives. Now I want to emphasize too that this is a joyful confession. It is an expression of submission, but it's a joyful submission. And we recognize, as we've seen over the last weeks in Colossians, we've been brought out of that old kingdom. If the kingdom was mine, that's what it would look like. But thank God that His is the kingdom. It's a kingdom of light and truth and joy and life. Uh, We look back with, with horror on the old kingdom that we've been taken out of and rejoice that God has delivered it. So it's a joyful confession when we say, yours is the kingdom. Secondly, there's an expression of trust, where we say, yours is the power. We're recognizing there that uh, the power to accomplish all that we've prayed for lies with God and not with us. Uh, Psalm 127, verse 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who, labor build in, uh, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Unless the Lord does what the things that we are asking of Him, they will not happen. Uh, unless God works powerfully in this world, darkness is not going to be uh, dispelled. Uh, injustice is not going to go away. Satan will continue to rule, and evil and abuse will continue to happen one generation after another. It is not the UN, it is not our government, it is not our own strength or our own intelligence that will make these things happen, that will, that will cause this world to change. We're recognizing it must be God if it is ever to happen. Uh, and uh, unless God acts, 
people will continue to rush headlong right into judgment, uh, into a judgment that they all very much deserve. God alone will redeem this world. And if without God, it will not happen. Uh, likewise, with, with the last three petitions, uh, God alone will provide us with the things that we need. Our strength and our effort and our wisdom, they may be used by Him, but without His blessing, they will be in vain. There's that expression of trust at the end of our prayers. We depend on God even for things as simple as our daily bread. We depend on Him also for our forgiveness. We recognize that it's no easy thing that sinners should ever be forgiven. Uh, We see a wall, as it were, a wall of God's justice that stands between us and Him. And it is an insuperable wall, a wall that cannot be passed over. Uh, God does not treat our condition lightly. Um, One of the beautiful passages on this is Micah 7, where uh, the prophet Micah looks at the brokenness of humanity, the sin in humanity, and he takes that old victory song that Moses wrote uh, when, when, when the armies of Pharaoh were drowned in the Red Sea. Micah takes that same song, and in, in Micah 7, he, he applies it to a far greater foe, and that is the, the foe of our own sin. Uh, So he says, this is verse 19, taking word for word from Moses' song, he says, God will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You see, what, what, what Micah recognized there is, it is no light thing for people to be forgiven. That is a mighty act. It is, it is battle language that he uses because our sins are that serious a threat against us. And so we too confess, yours is the power because it takes great power to forgive sins. You alone can save. We also depend on him for help in our fight against sin and temptation. That's what we looked at last week. We recognize when we're praying this well, we recognize the threats that stand against us are very great. Uh, The devil and his demonic powers are real, and they are set against us. And if we do not reckon with them, we will not pray concerning them, and we will fall before them. Uh, Not only that, the world hates those who belong to Christ. We are a living reminder to the world of the law of God and the justice of God. And on top of that, our own frail, weak flesh, still encumbered by the remnants of sin that have not gone away, those those parts of the old nature that still are there within us, they too afflict us. And so here too, this confession Yours is the power is is a confession of immediate dependence and help. God, if you do not help us, we will not succeed. And so it's an expression of trust in God who is almighty. And there too, uh, so not only does it express our dependence, our neediness, but also when we say yours is the power, we are saying God can do it, all that we ask of Him. Uh, And so we do well to spend time reflecting on the power of God. How many psalms uh, praise just the might and the power of God. 
If we do not know the power of God, then we do not pray like we know it. We see this in David's prayer as well, especially as he prayed for Solomon, his son. He recognized, my son is not going to be a great king by his own strength, by his own power. And so, look at David's prayer again, where he says, uh, where he, he, he says to God, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in, in the heavens and the earth is Yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and You are exalted above all. Both riches and honor, foreshadowing, right, of what was promised to Solomon, both riches and honor come from You, and You rule over all. In Your hand are power and might, and it is in Your hand to make great or to give strength to all. So he recognizes, my son will not be great except by the power and strength of God. And we need to know this too every time that we pray to God. It is in God's hand to do all that we ask of Him. He is able to change this broken world. We sometimes look at it and think, there's no way this world is ever going to change. It is in God's power to turn this place around. Uh, He is able to establish His kingdom in all of its glory, all of its beauty, in this broken world. He's able to overcome unbelief. He's able to change unrepentant and hard hearts. He's able to heal unrepairable wounds. He is able to provide all that we need. Uh, Those who who are still looking for their daily bread, longing for the job uh, that they so badly need, God is able to give it. He's able, moreover, to deliver us from sin. He's able to strengthen us against temptation. And so the more we consider God's power, uh, the better we we will be able to pray and the more earnestly we will pray. So this too, we confess and give God the honor for it. Yours is the power. And finally, and I would say most importantly of all, there is an expression of praise. Yours is the glory forever and ever. This is, in the end, what it's all about. This is how the Lord's Prayer begins. Hallowed or glorified be your name, and this is also now how it ends. Uh, What makes everything worth it is the glory of God being magnified and displayed on high. This is what the Christian life is all about, seeing and savoring the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And and the Christian life is, is, is an endless pursuit I shouldn't say endless because it, we, we will reach the end. We will reach that destination. But on this, on this side of eternity, it's an endless pursuit of the increasing glory of God. It's delighting in it and it's treasuring it. Uh, you think of Psalm 27, verse 4, where David stands in the tabernacle and he says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that is what I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. There's nothing that a Christian desires more than to see the glory and the beauty of God. Or Psalm 63, uh, where the psalmist says, O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh thirsts faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. 
So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you, and I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I lift up my hands. That's what this is all about. The glory of God. God made us, as we saw way back in the beginning of this prayer, God made us, created us for His glory, and God also saved us for His glory. Uh, This is why Jesus taught us to pray before anything else, hallowed be your name. And in our conclusion then, this is what we want to go back to. Uh, Paul also describes the Christian life in this way in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. He says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What a beautiful description of the Christian life. All of us, uh, with unveiled face, seeing Christ as He is now, we behold the glory of God and are being transformed into that same image. So the more you see, the more you become. The more you see the glory of God, the more you become remade into that image of glory. The Christian life, once again then, is a life of pursuing the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. It's discovering that we were made for eternity and that we were made for worship. Uh, and and this, is, this is, after all, what, what every human being was created for and what every human heart longs for. This is why people go uh, to the Grand Canyon just to see the majesty, because there is glory. And the human heart is, is, is unique among all the species of, 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 of God's creation in that the human heart has a distinct longing for glory. This is why we gaze up at the stars, uh, just, just to behold the vastness of the universe, because our hearts hunger for glory. We, we love to feel small in comparison to that which is truly great. This is what God made us for. This is why people travel all over the world as we saw, was it last year or the year before? I think last year, the, the, the solar eclipse that, that people come from all over the world to see because there they behold glory and their hearts rejoice in it. This is why people climb uh, Mount Everest for the glory of it and being able to participate in that glory. God has has woven this into our hearts. This should be uh, our heart's deepest desire. And as Christians, we know the glory that we were made for that will satisfy our souls is the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And so when we conclude our prayers, we remind ourselves of this. It's all about His glory. And there's nothing we desire or consider more worthy of our pursuit. Finally, we come to the word Amen at the very end of our prayers. And in case you didn't know, Amen does not mean the end, uh, though it is often perceived to mean that. Uh, it's an old Hebrew word, uh, and, uh, and it means that something is true and certain, as the Catechism also says. Now, every time the Lord Jesus in, in His teaching would say something like, Truly, truly, I say to you, uh, in the Greek... It says, Amen, Amen, I say to you. It means truly and certainly. When we say Amen at the end of the Lord's Prayer then, the thing that we are affirming to be true is not the the Lord's Prayer as such. It is the doxology at the end. That's what we say 
Amen too. And we say, yours is the kingdom. Amen. Yours is the, the, the power. Amen. And yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen. We are affirming those things to be true. And, and the beauty of the word amen uh, is, is that it's not just an affirmation of the truth, saying, yes, this is certainly true, but it's also a commitment to the truth. Uh, it's not just saying these things are true, but it's saying, I myself hold them to be true and will stand by them and live by them all the days of my life. That's why in, in, the, in the Old Testament, whenever there was a public prayer, all the people together would say, Amen. It is not just the leader who declares, these things are true and I will live by them. It is all of God's people as well. Uh, in First in Chronicles 16, for example, you get another prayer of David. And, and there David declares, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And then it says, Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Uh, just in, in the same way that when, when the blessings and curses of the covenant were read in Deuteronomy 27, the Lord instructed Moses and all the people together to say, Amen. It's the work of faith to not only recognize the truth of something, uh, but also to affirm it and to express our commitment to it. Uh, this is why I believe it's important, if we want to look for a point of application here, it's important in our worship services also for us as a congregation to declare our amen. And there are times I think we could learn from our African-American brothers down south and just sometimes yell it out, you know, amen, preach it, brother. Uh, because there there is an affirmation and a commitment to the truth. And that is a beautiful and good thing. There's something godly about every man, every woman taking ownership of the truth of God. At the very least for us, when there is, we can have this as a rule, where there is an amen coming from this pulpit, there should also be an amen coming from the congregation. Uh, When we express our trust, for example, in the very beginning of the worship service, we declare our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's a good time to say amen. Uh, And and even when I finish preaching, I stand before the text, uh, the word of God opened, having been expounded, explained, applied, and I finish my work by declaring amen, which is to say What God has shown us in His Word is true and certain, and I, for my part, as your pastor, will live by these truths, and so ought every one of you. Uh, When God speaks, there should be a resounding amen from all of God's people. So, brothers and sisters, as we consider this, the ending of the Lord's Prayer, let us... uh, Let these final words not just be uh, the, the end of our prayers, but the theme of our prayers, and even more, the theme of our entire lives. Let us confess with the whole of our lives, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen.